We're back in Genesis 32, Jacob and Esau. Let me read the passage for us, and you're going to hear those first four verses for the third time now. Can we do that? Let's just, let's just roll right with it. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanahim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from where he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong and where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. 
Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and on the sinew of the thigh. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inspired word. May he write its truths upon our heart. Let's pray as we dive into this text. Lord, this is a familiar text probably for many of us. We heard it growing up. We heard it in Sunday school, in VBS, Bible class. And so, Lord, there is a sense in which we can sort of bring a ho-hum, passive sort of nature to a text like this. But, oh, Lord, Help us come this morning with an eagerness. Help us come with a posture of humility like Jacob. We're clinging to you, Lord, saying, bless us. Give us your word. Lord, in a culture right now where there is a cacophony of voices, where there is no unity of vision, we need your vision. We need your word. So, Lord, would you bless it now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Pastor Paul, for those of you who don't know me, thanks for everybody who's here joining us, those who are jumping on board online. And of course, everyone by now has heard about the virus that's sweeping across our nation this summer. And I'm not talking about COVID, I'm talking about Hamilton, all right? Some of you on your 10th or 15th viewing on Disney+, Plus, in case you're late to the party and still in the Stone Ages somewhere, it's, it's a musical about the founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton specifically. And there's one bit character, small character. In fact, you never even see him in the play. You only hear him referenced by name, John Adams. And in this musical, they mock John Adams. They make fun of him. Uh, They mercilessly put him down. But if you've ever uh, been, read the biography of John Adams by David McCullough or see the series on HBO called Adams and Parents, highly recommend that one. That's great COVID viewing for you. Uh, It's an eight-part series. You know that John Adams in real life was anything but a minor player or a bit player in American history. He was a founder. He was the signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was the second president. He was ambassador to both England and France. In fact, he was gone so long, he was so committed to service to his country that when he returned from Europe, he didn't even recognize his own children. Now, after this COVID season, parents, maybe you wish you were John Adams. I don't know. And you might be feeling a little bit like John Adams as we're coming back to Genesis after a a long hiatus in 1 Peter. You may have forgotten, in in a sense, what all of these characters look like and and what's been going on and what's happening and who fits with whom. So to give us a running start back into Genesis, we're going to, to do three weeks on the journey of Jacob, Jacob's journey. We're going to pick back up right where we left off in chapter 32, and then we're going to move right into the story of Joseph over these next several Week. So let me try to get us up to speed. Now, you might have recalled that it's been 20 years since Jacob left Canaan, since Jacob left home. 
It's been a redemptive time in his life as he's lived with Laban, but it's also been a heartache. It has been a literal pain. See, God has gone to work during this season on Jacob's heart, Jacob's character. And that may be how like you feel this season. God has taken this respite from the usual to kind of go to work on your soul. And that's what God has been doing with Jacob. And he's been sort of turning Jacob's character flaws on their head and sort of using them in a way to teach Jacob about himself. Remember, Jacob was the master liar, the master deceiver. The play on his name literally means the deceiver. And here we have 20 years, imagine, of Jacob being nothing but lied and lied to and deceived by Uncle Laban. Uncle Laban, remember, tricks him into marrying the wrong daughter. And then Jacob's life becomes increasingly complex because Laban um, squeezes an additional seven years of labor out of him for him to marry the daughter he really wanted to marry. And then it tells us that, that Laban was constantly in this give-and-take struggle with Jacob, cheating him out of his wages, changing the terms of the contract. But praise God, hallelujah, Genesis 31, God says, Jacob, it's time to go home. It's time to pack your bags. It's time to head back to Canaan. This is the land I promised you and your ancestors. And you can imagine, right, at this point, what, what, what is Jacob probably saying in his heart? Free at last, free at last, right? God Almighty, I'm finally free of Laban. I've accumulated all of this wealth. I have a large family. I've got 11 children. I'm going back to claim the promise of the land. Everything is peachy king except one thing. Wait for it. Esau. See, as you will recall, Jacob tricked and deceived Esau, now not out of like riding shotgun like in, on the camel, right? But he 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 cheated him out of his birthright, out of his inheritance. He, in every way, completely stabbed Esau in the back. And Esau was so angry, um, you know, his mom, Jacob's mom said, you better get on out of here, okay, because, and go live with Uncle Laban because Esau wants to kill you. And so it's been 20 years, think about this, 20 years, and Jacob is carting a boatload of baggage back into Canaan with him. How will he handle this? More importantly, how will God handle this? How will God intervene? How will God be faithful to his promises? How will God pour out his grace? And so we're going we're gonna to learn from this, hopefully, Lord willing, what would God teach us about our past sins? What would God teach us about our past baggage? And for some of us, it's not really past. We've just sort of drug it into the present, and it's sort of lingering there, waiting to be claimed, right? It's, it's, it's ever-present. It might be, in, sometimes it moves to the foreground, other times it moves to the background. But, but we wrestle, we struggle, we're like Jacob. We want a new start. We want a new vision. We want a fresh word from God, but we've brought our brokenness with us. So what do we learn from Jacob here? Two, 
two scenes, okay, we're going to look at, two points here. Number one, we are going to look at Jacob's baggage. And then secondly, and most importantly, Jacob's brokenness. Jacob's baggage, Jacob's brokenness. Let's dive in. Now look in verses 1 and 2. As Jacob enters, okay, this, his old stomping grounds, it says that an army of angels meets Jacob at the border. We don't know if this is a vision or if this is like something in like around Bethlehem at Christmas time where the angels are appearing. We know that this is a multitude. It's an army. Now, why is this significant? That this troop of angels is meeting Jacob as he enters Canaan for the first time in 20 years. Think back, if you can, a number of months ago when we were, when we were in that section on Jacob's ladder, remember? Who was it that saw Jacob out of the promised land? It was angels, remember? And he had that dream Jacob did of angels descending and ascending. And essentially the essence of that was that God was showing Jacob it's not you can't reach me, Jacob. You can't, you can't accomplish this in your own strength. It's what I'm going to do for you. It's through the gospel of grace. I'm, gonna, I'm the one that initiates with you, Jacob. I'm the one that goes before you. I'm the one that works. And we talked about, didn't remember that this was probably, we think, the beginning of, I mean, this was Jacob's conversion. Now, it was just the beginning of this redemptive work. But how interesting that is Jacob comes back, his triumph return home, but you know the dread of Esau just seizing his soul. All of that baggage he's bringing in him, and it's as if God is saying, Jacob, I'm for you. Jacob, I'm with you. Jacob, I have not forgotten my promises to you. I'm not promising it's going to be easy. I'm not promising your 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 absolute physical protection in every way. I'm, I'm, but I'm saying I'm going to be faithful to my promises. I am going to establish your line. I am going to give your, your descendants this land. You can trust me. Now, that's important for us. Because a lot of us, when we think about the baggage in our life, the things that are undone, the things that are broken, the things that are unresolved, let's be honest, there can be a real sense of dread that just falls on us. It's like a curse. It's like this, we're, we're carrying around, we can almost feel the baggage that we're carrying around. And it's a, a reminder to Jacob, it's a reminder to us, always we must remember this as God's people, God is for us. Folks, God is for you. He wants your best. And sometimes that's a severe mercy to get to the other side. But as we're going to see, this is, Jacob is going to remember this vision. I think he's going to need to be reminded of it. He's, I mean, when he's in the midst of getting reacclimated and digging up all those skeletons in his closet, he's going to need to remember God is with me. God is for me. And us too. So look at verse four. The first thing Jacob does, Jacob does after this this appearance of the angels, he sends a message to Esau. Makes sense. Verse 4, thus, so he sends this servant, and he says, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. You may have wondered where I went, Esau. I've been gone. 
I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. In other words, hey Esau, we good? That's essentially what he's asking. We good? We all right? Tell me, give me, give me some, give me some feedback. And the servants report back, and, and, the, and the nature of the text is one where, where, where it, there's this, this contrast drawn between Jacob is sending messengers to Esau, but the messengers come back and say, oh, Jacob, just so you know, Esau is actually coming to see you. And he's got 400 men with him. One thing you need to know is that 400 men was a, in the ancient Near East was a standard size of a militia. This was an army. This was power. This was might, which helps us understand, look at verse 7, why Jacob is greatly distressed and terrified. He doesn't know Esau's intentions. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He's scared to death, and probably for good reason. He doesn't know, is this, is this a welcoming party? Or is this someone who's going to finally exact their revenge against me? And so Jacob does what Jacob does. He starts planning. He starts strategizing. He, he puts his old thinking cap on. And look what the text tells us first. It says he divides his... his his whole, all of his possessions into two camps. So what's significant about that, it shows us the enormous amount of wealth that Jacob had, right? It's, it's, it shows us that he has accumulated not just enough for one camp, okay, but in fact for two. So Jacob is here dividing his forces. Then the text goes on to tell us that his plan is to begin to send waves of gifts one after another to Esau. I mean, his thought is maybe if he's, if he's thinking he's coming to kill me, maybe this will sort of change him, his mind. Maybe this will be a goodwill offering. And one of the things to notice about the sheer amount, the size of this gift, is it is a gift literally fit for a king. Remember, camels, even at that time, were exceedingly rare and possessed only by the wealthy, right? It's like, just give Esau, just give him 30 of those camels, like, and all their calves, right? You know, it's like Willy Wonka just letting the kids loose into the chocolate factory and saying, just go for it, right? I've got, I've got plenty where that came from. Enormous wealth. Now, here's something important to note. What are we to make of this? See, it'd be, I think, easy to assume that this is just Jacob being Jacob. Jacob going to Jacob, right? He's going to try to buy his way out of this. He's going to manipulate. He's going to scheme. He's going to, he, he just wants to sweep all of his baggage sort of under the rug and let bygones be got bygones. And let me say this, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think Jacob is actually a radically changed man, and I think what he does here demonstrates true biblical faith. I believe is it an evidence of God's grace in his life. And let me point out four things in the text very quickly. Okay, number one, the geographical necessity of what's happening. At this point in time, Esau is living in Edom in the hills of, of Seir. This is not a place that Jacob has to go to get back to Canaan. Do you realize that? 
it, if you look on a map, it's a geographical detour. Yet, it appears that Jacob actually goes out of his way to seek out Esau. Now, think about all the things that Jacob could have done, right? <laughs> He's Jacob. He could have run. He could have taken the old end around. He might have come in, come in force. I mean, he has his own militia-sized army, right? He could have attacked. He could have just moseyed on in to the promised land, right? And then two or three years later, invite Esau over for the barbecue. And you get what I mean? We're, we just, we're, we're, we're bros, right? We're good. That's not what he does. He makes a beeline decisively right for Esau. And there is something to learn about this, isn't there? Jacob is now, not that he's, not that faith completely cancels out his fear. He's a human being. We're a human being. We're human beings. But we see that there's this ethic operating in Jacob's heart where he knows there is something unresolved. He knows there is something undone. And he knows that there is a biblical, God-honoring way that he has to address it. Second thing I want you to note is his prayerful posture. Look at verses 9 through 12. Do you realize this is the first recorded prayer of Jacob in the Bible? Up to this point, we got Jacob doing all kinds of things, right? He might talk about God. He may, others may talk to God about Jacob. But this is the first time recorded Jacob's prayer. And that's not insignificant because what does Jacob say? Look at verses 9 through 12. First, he confesses that he's not worthy. He, he admits that everything he's received has been by sheer grace. That, that he's been the recipient of God's blessings. He's only there, he recognized, by virtue of God and his promises. And he is praying, God, go before me. Now understand something. Faith is not necessarily antithetical to planning. Right? We, th- those two go hand in hand. And in fact, you will see a pattern, and we don't have time to break it down um, in detail, but what Jacob is doing all through, this, all through this chapter is planning, praying, planning, praying, planning, praying. So notice prayerful posture. Now, third, note his humble restitution. Look at verse 4. What does he call Esau? My Lord. What is, how does he refer to himself? Your servant. What is he asking for? Let me find favor. What, 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 what is Jacob doing here? He's confessing. He's submitting himself. And I think there's a real element of restitution here. There is a real physical demonstration of repentance because after all, what was one of the things that Jacob stole from Esau? Prominence. Wealth. The promise of the family farm. That was all going to come to Jacob And Jacob, by giving this massive gift, is, I think, making a symbolic demonstration of restitution. Esau, I want to make this right. At the very point that I hurt you, at the very point I stabbed you in the back, I want to press forward with you and acknowledge, I'm not trying to buy you off, Esau. I'm just trying to show you God has changed my heart. 
And a fourth thing to note here is Jacob's protective leadership. Look down in verses 22 through 24. Remember how Jacob used to use and abuse people? His own wives, his concubines, Esau, his mom, his dad. I mean, he is the master user deceiver. But interestingly, Jacob does something here. When it comes time to face Esau, he sends not only all of his goods and possessions ahead of him, but who else does he send? The dearest, most precious people in his, wife, his life, his, his wives, his, his servants, but, but primarily his children. He sends them on ahead because why? What's the relevance of that? It's because Jacob knows he needs to face Esau alone. No more hiding. No more human shields. It's time for Jacob to do business. And if Esau is going to kill him, then he's going to kill him. But I'm going to put myself between him and my family, the things that are most dear to me. I believe Jacob is acting out of faith in this chapter. Now, what are we to learn from all this? What are we to learn from all this? When it comes to our own baggage, what do we often want to do? It's the very things that Jacob avoids doing. See, we are ones who want to sleep it. We are ones who want to ignore it. We are the ones who want to let it slide on by. We're the ones that want to weasel back in. We're the ones who say things like, let bygones be bygones, Pastor Paul. That was ancient history. That was a long time ago. You know who says that? It's never the person who's been wounded. It's always the person who's done the wounding. That's what we say when we don't want to deal with something that may have really hurt and injured someone. You never hear people who are hurt and injured You never hear abuse survivors saying, let bygones be bygones. It's not a big deal. Let's just sweep that under the rug. Let's all move along. No, 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 no. See, there there is a, a, a principle here that Jacob is pressing forward for us. See, this is amazing. I think Bruce Waltke in his commentary is the one who mentions this. Note how similar this is to what Jesus tells the crowds in the Sermon on the Mount about the way to deal with conflict, about the way to deal with division. It's almost like Jesus read the Old Testament. I know it's shocking. Look at Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Here's what Jesus said. Hey, Four Oaks, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, hightail it to Canaan, right? No, what does he say? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Let me ask you a question. What has God stirred up for you this season? I don't ask if he's stirred up something. If you're a child of his, he most certainly has. Something unresolved, something undone, some area work of grace he wants to do in your life or a relationship or a past situation. And, and I don't know specifically, okay, what God is calling you to do apart from listening, understanding your current context. But what I do know, and I, and I don't know whether ultimate reconciliation is even possible, but I do know this, that no matter what has happened or not happened, 
division, conflict, broken relationships, personal baggage. There is always, isn't there? There's always something for every single one of us to own in any of those situations without fail. See, and this is what I, I think the Apostle Paul meant in Romans 12 when he says this. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. God may be stirring something up in your heart this morning. And before, as Paul Tripp would say, your inner lawyer kicks in, it makes the case why that's not relevant, why the Spirit's not really speaking. Just pause, calm down, and bring it to the Lord. Get the counsel of your church leaders. Get the counsel of your community group members. Share it with your spouse. Process what's going on in your heart and say, God, what are you doing here? What are you calling me to do? How are you, what, what is to, how can I have Jacob's posture? Now understand something, Jacob and Esau, as we're going to see in the coming chapters, are not going to be best buds, right? The ball is never going to, quite bounce as high as it once did. But that's not the point. The point Jacob is saying, as far as it's up to me, I want to live at peace with my brother who I have hurt. God, go before me. But before, as we'll see in the coming chapters, God does something between Jacob and Esau. God now wants to do something between himself and Jacob. Which brings us to our second point, Jacob's brokenness. Look at verse 24. Jacob has sent all of his entourage across the river. It's just him. We don't know if he's praying, certainly is, God asking him to prepare his heart. But when it says Jacob was left alone, it reminds me of Shakespeare's Henry V. It's the night before the decisive battle with the French in Agincourt, and no one can sleep. No one can sleep before the night of the battle. And so Henry disguises himself, and he begins to move around and amongst the men, the men that are outnumbered four to one. They are the Jacob in this situation. And he goes incognito and he begins to ask the men questions. He, what he's wanting to do is ascertain their readiness. Before they go into battle, Henry wants them to wrestle over, is what they're doing right? Is it just? Do they stand with the king? Are they, are they spiritually prepared? Are they of sound body and mind? Henry has them wrestle over why they're there because he knows, and this is really important, readiness comes through wrestling. Readiness comes through wrestling. And I want you to note who it is that initiates this wrestling match with Jacob. Who initiates it? God. Now, when we think about wrestling, I'm thinking about 1988 when I went with my roommate to Philadelphia for an Italian Thanksgiving and part of their tradition is they watch WWF on pay-per-view after dinner and so you know that's some of our stereotypical thoughts about what wrestling is but if you've ever been to a wrestling match and I mean like a real wrestling match 
you know I think it's one of the more exciting sporting events that you can go to or participate or watch because it's full of tension. It's full of sudden moves and brinkmanship and suspense and last-second reversals and points awarded or not. And that's the kind of wrestling match we're talking about here, except times 10. This is a, this is a life and death battle and struggle. And I don't think Jacob initially knows who he's wrestling with. For all he knows, it's Esau. For all he knows, it's a servant or a messenger sent by Esau to do him harm. It's, it's some enemy. He, I don't think he at this point knows. I think it only becomes progressively clear over the wrestling match who this is. And, it, and beyond of a shadow of a doubt, we know that he knows. In verse 28, when God reveals himself to Jacob and he says, Jacob, you've wrestled with God. And Jacob is like, now what's your name? And what does God say? Why are you asking my name? In other words, you know who I am, Jacob. You know who I am. Now, I, 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 I offer this tentatively to you. I actually think this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ that God sent his son. Now, why do I say that? Look at verse 24. First of all, this isn't God and God alone. This person is also described as what? A man. And you can see this, that in, in, in taking on the form of man, and this is the same it was with Jesus in his earthly ministry. Remember how Jesus would simultaneously restrain himself, right, from using all of his omnipotence and powers? Oftentimes, he needed to sleep. He needed to rest. You know, he got, you know, he, he, he became tired okay, in his humanity, but yet, Jesus was always able, at a moment's notice, able to conjure up supernatural power and ability to break through when necessary. It's a common pattern. We see this all the time. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. And this is what we see. That he's wrestling with Jacob, but he's restraining himself from exercising his full his full impact, because he, he's wanting to teach Jacob something. He's wanting to do something in Jacob, for Jacob, in Jacob's heart, through this wrestling match. And we get a sense of what this might be. Look back at the text. God asks Jacob first, what is your name? Now think about this for a second. God's not looking for information there, right? Like, Jacob, I, I forgot who you were. Tell me, tell me again. He's not asking because he doesn't know, but he's making Jacob speak literally who he is. Because remember, Jacob had become a play on words for deceiver, for striver, for self-achiever. And as God is holding him right there, and he says, Jacob, tell me your name. And he has to say, Jacob, deceiver, liar, manipulator, all these things you know are going through his mind on the eve that he is supposed to meet Esau. God says an amazing thing. And this is just an, an amazing demonstration of his grace where God says, no more. I'm going to change your name. 
and now your name is Israel. And Israel literally means prevailer or one who succeeds by striving. Do you know that before Israel became a nation, Israel was a person? All descended from Jacob. What is going on here? What is God trying to to tell Jacob? I think he's trying to tell him, Jacob, your tricks and schemes and manipulations of the past are just that. They're not going to get you anywhere. They're not going to get you anywhere. You, mighty of all men, by your own strength, it's never going to happen. It's going to be by my sheer grace. And so what does he do to give Jacob this object lesson? It says he touches him on the hip, right? I think at this point, Jacob's like, hmm, (laughs) we struggled all night. And you just touched my hip, and now I'm incapacitated. Now, why the hip? Why the hip? What is Jacob known for? We've seen throughout these stories besides his deception. See, he's known for his strength. We've seen that over and over again, how he watered the camels and moved the stone well, and he's worked for 20 years. I mean, that is, I mean, it's very clear, okay? Jacob is a strong man. But those of you who have hip problems can attest to this, right? When your hip is off, everything is off. It's your pivot point. You can't move. You're lame. You're limp. And this is what's happening to Jacob. He is crippled. And God is, as if God is saying, Jacob, before I deal with your baggage, four oaks, before I deal with your baggage, you have to be a broken person. You have to come to the end of yourself. You have to understand no amount of scheming is going to press you forward. No plan, no lie, no manipulation. Anything that happens in and through you is going to come by my sheer grace. And I'm going to have to break you at your greatest point of strength. And isn't this so oxymoronic, is it not? Here, Jacob, this strong man, constantly in a mess. Here, God touches his hip. He's going to limp the rest of his life. And it's at that point that God establishes him as a nation. Again, it's like Paul read the Old Testament, right? For when I am weak, Paul says, he is strong. Bruce Walkie says this, God will come forcefully to others at night in order to prepare them spiritually for dangerous encounters. During this dark night, what has God come to you wanting to do in your heart and in your life? See, Jacob is going to be limping the rest of his life. It's going to be a reminder to him, you have to be broken to be blessed. You have to be broken to be, to be blessed. And people who have been broken, and you know these people, they walk with a spiritual limp, and there is great power in them. Not their power, but the power of the Spirit. Let me ask you a question. What is your proverbial hip this morning? In other words, that thing that you know you can rely on when the chips are down. It's this one physical gift 
It's my intellect, Pastor Paul. No, 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 it's my job. It's my status. It's my bank account. It's my family heritage. It's whatever that thing is for you that you rely on and are tempted to trust in that above God, God says, I've got to touch that place. And I've got to be, I've got to remind you, like Luther said, that our striving would be losing if the right man were not on our side. You see, God has to break us so that just like Jacob, you know, this is important, and, and Bruce Walkey notes this in his commentary, that notice how Jacob goes from wrestling to what? Clinging. He stops wrestling with God. He starts clinging to God. See, wrestling with God, let me say this, is not wrong per se. We wrestle with God over things. And I hope that you take this message this morning and you wrestle with God. God, what's your will? God, what should I do? God, would you change this person's heart? God, would you work? God, would you provide? God, would you make clear? God, would you provide strength? That's wrestling with God. I don't ask if you're wrestling with God this morning because we all are. The question is, what kind of wrestling are we doing? Is our wrestling one of defiance and opposition and high-handedness against God, knowing what he has said to do, knowing the direction he has pointed us to go, but refusing to do it, refusing to let go of that sin, refusing to let go of that situation, refusing to act on that piece of baggage we know he's calling us to act upon? Or is your wrestling a submitted struggle that seeks his grace that clings to him and say, God, I, I don't know if I can do this, but I know you can through me. God, I, I don't have the goods. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the strength to meet Esau. And that is precisely the point where God wants to speak wisdom and power into your soul. Not as the world knows, not to make you rich, not to make you famous, not to take away all your problems, but to magnify his strength through your weakness. Christian, be encouraged in your wrestling this morning, as hard as it might be. And in your wrestling, imitate Jacob by clinging to Christ and say, God, be enough for me. See, Jesus as our high priest, totally sympathizes with us. Why is that? Do you know that I think it was Jesus who was wrestling with God in the Garden of Gethsemane? I think that's exactly what Jesus was doing. What did he say? God, take this cup from me. But then very quickly, Jesus clings to his Father and says, but not my will, but yours. And he prevailed for you and for me through weakness, through suffering, through death. And that is how we will persevere in this life because of God's grace bought for us on a cross so that our striving would not be losing, but that his grace would be sufficient 
for us. Let's pray.